Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. And on this, the Think Again podcast, we revisit these ideas in new and unpredictable ways. Our producers surprised me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't come here expecting to discuss. Today I'm joined by Aaron Mankey, the creator and host of Lore, a critically acclaimed and enormously popular podcast about the frightening history behind common folklore. Some of Lore's most chilling stories are collected in Aaron's new book, The World of Lore, Monstrous Creatures, and there's an Amazon television series launching on Friday the 13th of October. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad. I'm so glad to have you on the show. I, I I was idly wondering as I was writing that description whether you find yourself running out of adjectives sometimes, like eerie, chilling, terrifying, <laughs> monstrous, blood curdling, and so right. on. Right. No, I I hope not. That's that's a frightening thought to consider. <laughs> Do you have a thesaurus, like a, a thesaurus of eerie words near, no, th- near your thankfully, desk when you th- write? No, thankfully most of those terms get used by other people to describe my work and I don't have to, you know, <laughs> self, self-adject, self-adjectate myself. I'm not sure if that's a word, but we've made it up. <laughs> Adject, adjectivify. Um, I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but we might as well start here. Where did your where did this start for you? Like when did you first find yourself kind of drawn into and obsessed with stories of the and like semi true or possibly true stories of the supernatural? Yeah, I have a couple of distinct memories that date back to fifth grade. So I probably would have been about ten. Um, it was it was uh, the, the Halloween time. Um, I don't know which memory came first. Uh, I, I was in a public school and the teacher sent us home that year with um, that month. Actually, it was September or October with a copy of the Scholastic Readers Club catalog. And uh, that was just a, a, you know, a, a cornerstone of most of my childhood uh, school experience. And the Scholastic Readers Club catalogs were those, you know, color newsprint little stapled catalogs that had books in them that you could buy. And I right. I saw a, a book in there. I don't remember the author or the title of the book at all. I don't I don't even think I have a copy of it left or laying around. But but it was essentially a book of unusual, weird tales that were supposedly true. So I managed to convince my parents to buy that for me. And th- I think that was the moment I just fell in love with this idea of true stories that are that aren't boring. You know, you, you go to school and you take history class and whatever else you right. take, and you're used to all of these true stories just kind of being boring. And uh, th- this was definitely not a collection of boring stories. These were very unusual and odd and bizarre stories. So that was that was the main thing that, that hooked me. It was also sometime around Halloween that my teacher asked us to work on our handwriting as an exercise. She gave us a short story to write and asked us to write some you know Halloween-themed story. And that was my first taste of retelling or creating creepy experiences uh, for a reading audience. And and I absolutely loved the experience. What what story was it do you, exactly? What did you? Um, it's it's so goofy. I, I <laughs> it was a story about a family who, you know, as a family went to the pumpkin patch and brought back a pumpkin that they were going to carve um, as one does. And they got the knife and cut it open and found human bones inside. And Ooh. The, uh, 
you know, the big reveal at the end of the story is that the pumpkin patch had been built over the top of a, an ancient uh, graveyard and the bones were coming up inside these these pumpkins. So, oh, yeah. well, no, that that's that's terif- That's really creepy because pum- pumpkins <laughs> are very corpse-like. They are, yeah. You know, you have a number of, um, I mean, you talk, you talk about vampire stories in here and you talk about werewolf stories. Some of them kind of like overlap and segue into each other. I, I, I guess let's talk more, more generally. Like you hinted at this with the idea of not boring. Like what, what is it that you think like interests people generally in these stories? Like why are, they, why are we so fascinated by the creepy tales? Oh boy, it's a good question. I mean, you know, I think some of this comes down to the modern world we live in with all of its technology and science and, you know, medical breakthroughs. I feel like our modern world keeps taking the shadows away from us. These things are all great. You know, it's, it's, I'm very thankful for modern medicine and for advancements in science and technology, but I think it, it strips the unknown out of our lives. And uh, my background prior to lore was as a graphic designer and you know one of the laws you kind of try to hold to as a designer is this idea of white space that you want to make something prominent and and highlight it on the page you need enough white space the you know the nothingness around it to help it stand out and i think that what's happened is when we strip away the darkness and the shadows from our lives with all these answers we get through science and technology and whatnot I think that we lose the mystery in the white space and our lives need a little bit of that, you know, of that unexplainableness to feel more anchored. That's my working theory anyway. <laughs> That's interesting. No, I mean, I think, and I think it's true of both the scary stories and the hopeful, happy stories, angels, you know, God and and so on. But, you know, I wonder what, also specifically, I mean, in addition to the lure of mystery, which is clearly a, a big part of it, what what draws us specifically to these tales of like mis- grisly deaths and hauntings and revenants and, and so yeah. on? I mean, p- part of it has to do with the fact that we see ourselves in those stories. You know, we we have this rubbernecker mentality as, as um, modern humans. We like to see other people's suffering as a way to maybe evoke emotion in our lives because our lives are so busy, we sometimes don't even feel emotion or because we have a need to feel sympathetic toward people. And so you stare and look at the accident or out of a hope that it doesn't happen to us or, you know, whatever there's, 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 I think there's a lot of layers to that, that propensity for us to look at the suffering of other people. Um, I don't think, I don't think the the biggest reason is that we're entertained by other people's suffering, but because we pay attention, I think I think we're being entertained in some way. But yeah, I think that we we seek out these stories because they they reflect who we are. You know, stories about H. H. Holmes. You know, this guy in Chicago in the 1890s who essentially built a a maze of a building to kidnap and kill mostly women who came to town for the the World Exhibition in Chicago. And and you know, you have this guy who on one level is incredibly sadistic and and monstrous right but he's also the epitome of what makes us human in that he's ingenious he's he's creative he's thinking his way through problems and he's using ingenuity and you know mechanical engineering and and physics and chemistry to 
to achieve his goals, which which is admirable. Hmm. It's just that his hmm. goals were completely messed up. So there, there are elements to all these stories that we look at and we say, I'm in that story or I want to be in that story and to some degree. Yeah. So, I mean, it's complex, right? I mean, so there's there's, you know, his creative ingenuity. There's the fear that we all feel and experience like all the time about all kinds of things, maybe fundamentally, finally going back to mortality. That's a preoccupation of ours. And maybe this is some sort of catharsis living in fantasy there through these stories. It seems like there's a lot of layers going on. Um, and then also you tell stories about or you tell some stories which people used seem to be using to explain deaths and illness and things that they didn't understand in their communities. Yeah, I, I think there's a whole it's not a category of folklore, but but you can dip into folklore and find it all over the place. You know, the, the world is full of mystery and we don't understand what is out there in the shadows at night. So let's tell stories about it to help us you know, grasp our world differently. There's lots of stories of like little trickster people all over the world in cultures that never interacted um, going back hundreds or thousands of years. And these stories are incredibly common and incredibly similar. Don't don't upset these creatures. They will come into your life and make you miserable. Bad things will happen. And I think they exist partly to explain just why bad things happen to begin with. Why do we why do accidents happen in our lives? Well, you know, we understand now that there's probability. Sometimes accidents are just going to happen. But, you know, centuries ago, if if people weren't thinking that critically about it, it, it was easier to say, well, of course, you know, you you ticked off the puka and they've come into your village and now they're they're making your life a living hell. And that was the way to describe it and explain it. So there's a lot of that blaming our our fallibility on something else. I, I didn't realize, actually, that um, Shakespeare's puck from Midsummer Night's Dream, that that word etymologically is related to the Irish puka, which are these little trickster creatures. That that was news to me. Yeah, absolutely. That's cool. I mean, so this is getting at something interesting, I think, you know, which is that the stories both restore mystery or they both, let's say, they appeal to our sense of mystery because, I mean, we could say, you know, in our time, there's a need to restore mystery, but like at all times, humans have perhaps uh, found delight in mystery. And at the same time, they serve as explainers. They seem to do those two contradictory mm-hmm. things, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, people often ask me, you know, what's your stance on these stories that you tell? Do you think that these are true? And and I, I always tell them that I, I, I walk the fence. You know, I have to be the guy who straddles both sides of the fence. I can't create a show for just for believers in, in the supernatural or just for, you know, hardcore skeptics. I mean, I could. But that's not the role that lore plays. Lore is to tell the stories. You make up your mind. You know, you figure it out. It's what you, it's where you can go with it. But at the end of the day, whether or not the story is true is really up to the listener. And, but we can say the same thing about historical events that are deeply recorded. You know, we still understand that, you know, the victor writes history and the details are always left out. And, you know, we look at the, the political situation and the social situation in our country today. It's people have a, a, a twisted view of things that happened you know, back in the 1860s and, and, and what they mean today. And like history is always this messy. It's an incomplete puzzle. And, and so one of the reasons why I think I, I like to walk the line, though, is because I am like a lot of people. I, I love mystery in my life. And at the same time, I, like everyone else, want all the answers. And it's a really strange duality to hold on to. That's right. I mean, yeah, our logic is is fallible. Our our science is incomplete. And as you say, history is told by whoever 
happens to tell it. Right. You know, so that leaves us that leaves us with a certain doubt. I and I have to say that like I you know, with respect to these kinds of stories, I tend to come down on the side of, well, why isn't there a real, why is there not a photograph that is just absolutely undeniable, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, the way you talk about, for example, the Jersey Devil sightings, how mass hysteria doesn't always seem to explain these situations. I mean, you know, there is, there is a certain slipperiness there for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and then real life throws clues your way when you're not expecting them that that don't help you solve the mystery at all. You know, it's back to these little people, these stories in Ireland, there's the puka and you go up to, uh, to Iceland and they talk about the elves, still small, invisible humanoids in South America. There are the Elush. There are tales in Indonesia, you know, around the other side of the globe, thousands and thousands of miles separated, never contact with, with Ireland at all. Right. It's, it's completely different culture. And there are tribes in in Indonesia that would speak of what they called the Ibu Gogo. They were, although it sounds like a Belinda Carlisle cover band, it's, it's, it was this legend of these small creatures who, you know, they made your life a living hell if you didn't appease them and take care of them. And they talked about how the Ibu Gogo would come into their, their, their villages and steal their young. They would take their children from them or take their food. And then um, one of the legends says that at some point they... They chase the Ibugogo into the woods and they trapped them in a, in a cave and they, they killed as many as they could, but two of them escaped, a man and a woman or a male and a female. And then years ago, I don't know, a decade or so ago, archaeologists and anthropologists were studying and digging in Indonesia and came across skeletal remains of the scientific name for the type of the branch of the human evolutionary tree, but they called it... Um, Homo floriensis, and uh, the nickname for them are the hobbits because they are small, human-like people. And you have to wonder, like, you know, do, do the people that tell these stories about the Ibugogo, do they tell them because somewhere deep in the past, so far back that it's foggy, it's, it's not anchored in reality anymore, somewhere somebody actually had an experience and passed it on, and then it got passed on. And, you know, the telephone game, all of a sudden it's this, mythical godlike race of people that live in the woods and you know maybe it was actually you know final remnant of an old branch of you know the human evolutionary tree it's it's really and i yeah. i think there's something really like really profound and really beautiful and really powerful about about that you know we do focus a lot on on trying to get the facts right and and that's really really important as you said earlier but there's also something really, I think, profound and beautiful and powerful about the kind of slippery metaphorical ways that human thought and memory works and the way that like these kind of connections, you know, evolve and mutate. Absolutely. I don't know if this is if this is a an annoying question, but like are there an like seemingly infinite number of these stories? Like, do you have drawers upon drawers? Like how are you know, are people sending you stories at this point? Do you have like more than you could tell in a lifetime? <laughs> I, you know, I have a, <laughs> I have a very long list of topics that I want to cover. I think if I, if I didn't bump into anything new and I kept at it, I'd probably go into the middle of 2020, you know, so another, <laughs> gotcha. another three years worth of material. There's, there's a lot out there. I get emails all the time from listeners. I don't, I don't read suggestions. I, 
those tend to get trashed. I, you know, for whatever reasons, I. So audience, don't don't send don't don't deluge Aaron. With yeah, the please don't send me. That, no, yeah. I can't tell you how many times somebody's emailed me and said, "Hey, you gotta you've got to do an episode, right? Like, I, you know, twenty five <laughs> minute episode storytelling. You've got to do an episode on on this forest in Japan <laughs> where people go and kill themselves. Well, that's the story. Ooh. Like that's it. That that's the, yeah. people go into the forest and they kill themselves. That's the story. I could I could elaborate on the numbers of people and the years that it's taking place, but there's no other story than that. There are no there are no players, there are no characters, there's no plot. Right, it's just right, right. A creepy thing to learn, <laughs> right? And so I've had to learn over the years what's the difference between a creepy thing to learn that you can say in, in an elevator pitch of 30 seconds versus where are the stories that I need 20 minutes to unpack mm. and I need to teach you some historical context before I even get into them and equip you with the right tools so that when we do jump into the story, the story makes more sense. And there's a, there's a line there between cool, neat fact that people want to know or want to tell other people and a really compelling story. And at the end of the day, I just have to use my gut on that. So I tend to get rid of suggestions and, and follow my, Follow my sniffer. Yeah. How? Um, and this is another subject you've probably covered many times, but I think people will find it interesting. Um, you know how the, your the story of how you you know how you made this show and how you made it into something um, big. This is this is very interesting. Were you doing this like entirely on your own at first? And when, like when did the show start? When, when, and how did you know? Yeah. Let's start there. Well, so at the tail end of my design career, I did that for, I don't know, seven or eight years, um, ran my own freelance business, but but I was writing in my evenings. I was always writing, I call them supernatural thrillers. I, I think that's what most people call them these days. Um, you know, a, 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 a mysterious thriller-like story that involves some supernatural element. And because I live in New England and I'm very drawn to the history, the culture, the folklore of the region, I would I would research things that had happened in the area and try to inject them into these stories to add a bit of um, solid ground. You know, this is a real thing. People might have heard of this. There's a connection, whatnot. Um, and I would find a lot more than I could use in my novels. I would find, you know, 10 different stories and use one of them. And I would just kind of save them away because they're all so great. Right. And I would just tuck them away, use Evernote to store them in a, in a you know, little locker forever. And, um, I was trying to find a way to build an audience to, to get more people interested in the stuff that I was writing. And I thought, well, why don't I take these leftover scraps, these pieces of history that I really love and just write about a few of them and give that document away. You know, say, hey, if you give me your email address, you can download this PDF and you can read these five historical essays about stuff that inspires my books. And, you know, I feel like there would be some, you know, some connection between the interests of the reader for my books and, and then this type of stuff. And I wrote four of the five. So you were so so. Let me yeah. let me say that interrupt and say that you were thinking then very early in a pretty smart kind of marketing way that a lot of uh, artsy people, myself included, sometimes have trouble with. I mean, you were like, "Let me capture emails." Like that that was there early on. Yeah, I mean, kind of. I you know this was at the end of years of writing and self publishing. Okay. You know, maybe making five bucks a month. So I, I, if, if it's a lesson, yeah, I'm not necessarily saying that I was really sneaky and ingenious in this. I kind of, it was my last ditch effort. You know, my, uh -huh. my design business was tanking. Um, I was going to have to work probably a second job and I had to validate the time that I was putting into my fiction writing. And 
that, well, if I could increase my audience, maybe I can increase my sales. Maybe then I could at least justify the time I spend on writing it. I could write slower, whatever. Pick one night a week instead of five. Hmm. So I was just doing what a lot of online businesses that I see will do, you know, sign up for my 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 business coaching newsletter and right, 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 this right. document that has the five five best tax tips in there, right? Yeah. Um, but why 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 self publishing and why building your own audience instead of trying to just go to like you know send it to agents or whatever? Why did you go that route? You know, for years I subscribed to this idea that what you gave up in control and financial pieces to a publisher wasn't you can make it up on your own elsewhere. And I, I, I adhere to that for a very long time. Um, I, I know people that still do. Um, I know people who fall on the complete opposite side of the coin and say that you just need to write well and get a publishing deal and everything else falls into place. Neither are true. I mean, most publishers don't spend a lot of money on marketing a book for an author. 80% of authors don't even earn out their advance. So there's really like becoming a published author isn't a get rich quick scheme either you know, the same as self-publishing your stuff are. Because when you self-publish, you have to build your own, you know, marketing plan and you have to get right. the word out and, and people have to like it and all that stuff. And I had the benefit of of being a designer so I could design, you know, attractive professional covers and um, I could handle the interior layout really well. But, you know, I didn't have a professional editor and I didn't have somebody to say this plot thread here <laughs> actually doesn't work and you right. need to change that. And so there, you know, like you, you it's give and take. All that to say... Um, I wrote four of the five essays and looked at the word count and realized I was going to be asking people to read a PDF on their mobile phone to the tune of fifteen or twenty thousand words. Oh wow! <laughs> and at, at that point, it didn't it didn't feel valuable anymore. If the idea was to I'll give you valuable things for your email address, I was no longer offering something valuable. <laughs> and I grabbed the file and I dragged it to my trash can to get rid of it because it wasn't valuable anymore. And right as I was about to delete it, I realized that. It wouldn't be valuable to me because I wouldn't sit in front of a phone and read, pinch and zoom and tap around on a PDF for 20,000 words. I would I would rather listen to something. And I realized that I had a mic, cheap, you know, USB Yeti, and uh, and I have GarageBand on my Mac because that's, that's always there. I guess I could record an audiobook of these. You know, that all I was thinking was, I like audiobooks. Let me do an audiobook version of these essays. And I'll put them in a zip folder. And if people want to sign up for the list, I'll let them download this zip folder. That was it. So I did one of them and I sent it to a friend and I, I told him my plan. And I said, now, do I do this? And he said, no. <laughs> he said, uh, he said, this is a podcast. And I fought him on that for a while. And I didn't think it was. Um, I thought podcasts were more technical oriented. And so I took him at his word and in about 48 hours, I did everything I needed to do to get up and running, you know, figure out how to host a podcast, how to get it in iTunes, um, file formats. I branded it. I built a website and I put it up thinking one more failed attempt at marketing my stuff, right? Like this is just, <laughs> right, 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 right. you know, and the first day I had nine downloads and, and you know, that's probably par for the course for a lot of people. Um, and I looked at that and I said, great, nine people. I had 66 people on my mailing list. And and only nine people listened to my show, and I I <laughs> felt like this was going nowhere, but but it evidently caught on at some point. And so, you were kind of and, you were and, probably the only one doing it, more or less, or at least one of the few. Well, in the spring of 2015, I was, you know, that you know, yeah. that there wasn't anything like that in that space, and that also helped. But there's also, you know, I I was telling fiction stories for years and converted over to you know kind of this 
more like traditional oral storytelling with a bit of history thrown in. And maybe just the combination of the pieces help people stay on long enough to let my show grow and evolve and mature. And it was probably around, you know, seven or eight episodes in that, you know, got a better mic and really started to flesh out the, the structure of the, of the show and people stuck with it. And, and it's just continued to grow. Yeah, I think, I think it should be emphasized and, you know, and maybe this is the last thing I'd say before we go over to the second half of the show, but that, um, you know, that I, I think that one of the things that's most interesting about what, what you're doing is this way that it exists at the intersection of history and fiction, you know, of fact and fiction. I mean, that, 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 that's, that's special. Mm -hmm. That's not like a lot of things. All an accident. <laughs> you know, I'm making this up as I go along. Well, at the end of the day, I make, and it's very cliche and you hear it all the time, but I make a, I make a show that I would love to listen to. You know, that, that's why I pick the time for, you know, it's, it's 25, 30 minutes long because for me, that's, you know, a trip to the store and back. That's interesting. Yeah. Whereas I listen to podcasts primarily while either exercising or washing dishes. So 45 to uh, minutes to better an hour for you. Yeah, is closer to my speed. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. So now let us transition to the second part of the show in which we will watch um, surprise clips that have been chosen for us by the producers. These are uh, short video interviews from Big Things Archives, and I've not seen them and you've not seen them. And I think that we should start with Andrew Taggart, can universal basic income end our cultural obsession with work? This isn't a quiz or anything. We just kind of watch and go wherever we go with the conversation. It's just a springboard. Sounds good. Total work was a term coined by Joseph Pieper, a lesser known German philosopher in the 20th century. And he was concerned that after World War II, there would be a time of total work by that, I take him to mean that work comes to be the center around which the world turns. The human beings start to see themselves chiefly as workers, and the entirety of life becomes more and more work or work-like. We come to think that work is actually the center, and everything else begins to turn around it. To see this more clearly, we can think about the fact that we woke up to go to work today or that we are going home from work today. And this is happening all the way around the world. Meanwhile, we're adjusting our schedules, the rest of our lives, so that they are turning about it. So that would be the first condition. The second condition is subordination, that everything else in life comes to seem as if it's subordinate to and to be put in the service of work. Sleeping. Right. The, the idea is that we wish to sleep well today in order to be focused and prepared for work. The third condition is the resemblance claim. It seems as if everything else in life comes to resemble work more and more. So you can think of on a day off, you're wanting to be as productive as possible, thinking about how much you got done. You can begin to think about all the ways in which you plan and schedule time with children. The, the terms that begin to mark out our lives, even when we're not actually working, sound more and more work-like. And the last condition, I think, is the, the most uh, intense. 
And that's what I might call cultural forgetfulness. We've come to almost forget that there was a time in which work was not the center of the world, that there are other ways of life that precede the modern world in which work was a part of life but was not the focus of life. We forget that that's still true today with other cultures, some other cultures. And we forget that there could actually be a time when work would not be that around which the rest of the world turns. I mean, work is a, it's a, it's a really big box to unpack, right? So there's, you know, ideas around how much you should work or what you should do for work, or what you should get out of work, right? I mean, it's, it's, there's so many different ways to go with it. Um, I'm a big subscriber to the belief that people don't, that we're not really meant to retire, um, that we need to we need to work in some capacity not not in the sense that we need to have a job and earn an income but that we need to be walking toward a goal of some kind and i think we we live in this really bizarre time in the last the last century or so where so many new jobs have been created that didn't exist before i think about somebody who like a professional golfer at some point you know they probably will retire you know because it's taxing on their body and they can't do things anymore that they used to or you think about this with football players who get a life expectancy, you know, like in the NFL of maybe 10 or 15 years and they're done. And then what's, what's the purpose of the rest of your life? And so I, I like to think about work as this thing that you're always going to do. You know, I, I, I tend to think more historically and say, well, you know, for a while you're, you know, you're the farmer and you do hard work, but when your body can't take it, you've got all this experience in your head. And then you turn around and your work is helping others do their job better or, you know, selling equipment to people who do that job because you know that job so well and, yeah. It seems to me like humans, you know, our, our differentiating thing is that, you know, one of them for sure is that we are learning creatures and that we take delight in learning. And so under ideal circumstances where we're not sort of living like mules in the sense of having to do repetitive exhausting work every day simply to survive, which is the case for many, many people living today still. Um, but in the case where, you know, we have options, we still want to, I, I think I'm agreeing with you, we still want to find work or if you want to call it, you know, learning opportunities that are going to keep us involved and invested and excited, you know, in where we're moving. Yeah. Yeah, and I think maybe this is where the idea of purpose comes in. A lot of people, most people, don't get to do for for their occupation, for their living, what really fires them up and and uh, what they what they love. They work because they need the paycheck, and it's the job that they have. Maybe they maybe they have a degree that pushes them in that direction, or maybe they have no degree, and so this is what's left. So you know, when somebody like this in the video talks about work from from this perspective it tends to highlight how people who can choose tend to forget that there are people who can't choose. Um, I'm incredibly fortunate. You know, I, I, I get up in the morning and I write for three hours and that's the bulk of my creative output. And that's a luxury. And I, I never take that for granted. Um, what makes up for that seeming luxury is that I will do this until I die. You know, I, I won't stop at 64 and a half or 65 and then, play golf the rest of my life. I, I, I plan to tell stories and and do this for as long as I can 
mentally manage it. And I get that not everybody can, they can do that in their job, whatever it is, mostly manual labor and things like that. Yeah, well, and I'm, I'm thinking as you're talking about the fact that like, you know, that there are people who, um, you know, historically and still today who who don't have a lot of options either because of where they live or you know um, because of education or w whatever it might be but there are a lot of other people who do have options and who don't necessarily take them and and there I would go out on a limb and speculate that like at least in in America which I know better than other cultures there is this kind of inherited maybe hangover from from the days where lifelong brutal labor was a necessity for everyone kind of thing um, where work work for the sake of work is a value and that people who might have a choice don't necessarily take advantage of that choice yeah I think so I think you know a good analogy to this might be sugar my kids don't get sugar often, but there are families that, you know, sugar is a, you know, constant part of their kid's life and other families where they're just not allowed to have sugar at all. Right. So there's this, it's one of these things where you, life is life. And then when you experience sugar, life is built around it. You know, I want something sweet now. I want to have that little high in the middle of my day from that. And I, you know, we went from a country that worked really hard for a very long time for a lot of reasons, whether it was, you know, recovering from the Great Depression or it was working during World War II to, you know, build up our, our military might, you know, whatever the working purpose was, we worked really hard. And then we started to get a taste for, for leisure activities, you know, like, you know, going to Disney World, things like that, that, you know, you take a, take a week off from work and go just have fun and spend money and and enjoy life. And it's kind of hard to want to go back. And so I can see how we would have that hangover, that that reaction, the the swing of the pendulum from one extreme to the other where, well, I don't want to work as hard now because look at all the other fun things I could be doing. You know, I could be mountain biking through the woods right now or, you know, whatever. So, um, but, but I think that like getting too much sugar, I think not working enough can harm us as people. And I think we're built to we're built to, to go out and, and do great things and, and achieve things. I think that the, the, the faults come in when he talks about things like productivity, you know, where we're, well, how can we get more work done in the same amount of time? Let's be more productive. And here are ways to be more productive. And that that's all driven by economic factors. That's not, that's not a basic purpose of work conversation. That's a, well, the only reason why we do that is because we need to increase our output and lower our costs so that we can sell more product and make more money. And that's a, that's an economic conversation and, and maybe that's where things break down. You know, maybe that's, yeah. That's right. I think, yeah, that's where people, I think, yeah, that, I mean, those are, those are, that's management propaganda that then becomes people's life kind of defining, you know, uh, cognitive framework or whatever. And right. that, I, that's a problem. Absolutely. No, I mean, and I think, you know, likewise, the idea of work you know that you're that you're excited to get up for and do in the morning is you know a little bit antithetical to the maybe former kind of survivalist like idea that work you know like suffering is bound up with work you know in that in that older vision of just kind of getting through mm -hmm. and so so it may be hard for some people to even begin to conceive of like 
oh, am I supposed to like my work? Is that actually, you know, <laughs> that that's 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 an okay right. thing? Like, you know, isn't leisure supposed to be leisure and, and work work? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to control that that we we need as as humans. We need uh, some control over how we're how we are working. You know, to, to pull this back into the realm of folklore, um, some of some of the roots of the idea of the zombie come to us from. I mean, most of the roots historically and culturally are West African, brought over by people who are kidnapped and taken into slavery, and then brought to, um, you know, the the Caribbean area. And one of the one of the pieces of folklore was, you know, we're eventually we're going to get back to West Africa. Eventually, we're going to get we're going to get to go home, right? Because they were they were basically forced to do what they didn't want to do. Um, and, and their desires meant nothing. They were slaves, like literally had no will. They just did what, you know, slaves were, they were machines for their owners. And so what would f happen frequently was suicide to get out of that life. There, there was, you know, there was suicide. And so some of the folklore that came up about that was, well, if you do kill yourself, you won't actually go back to, to home, you, to West Africa. You will you know, appear in an afterlife where you are forced to work in essentially in slavery in the afterlife forever. Like their idea of punishment was work without purpose, work without free will, work without control. You know, that humans have to have this, we have to have this level of control over our own lives, you know, and that's why we, that's why we climb the ladder at work. So we can become managers and now we have some control and then we can become directors. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's part of, just the human psyche to to want to have that control. I think that that is, and that's a that's a good place I think for us to then shift to the second clip and still continuing with the with, with uh, you know back to folklore. The 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 second one that I'd like to watch is this um, is Stephen Greenblatt, who's a humanities scholar, talking about um, the story of Adam and Eve and why it's a powerful story full of holes. I think the first thing to say about the story of Adam and Eve is it's one of innumerable origin stories. It happens to be the most celebrated, the most famous and powerful origin story in our culture, central to Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Uh, but it's only one of many, many origin stories. It seems to be something that our species does. And as far as we know, other species don't do it. Uh, I don't think that chimpanzees ask uh, questions about the origin of chimpanzees or uh, bottlenose dolphins and uh, sperm whales. But we do ask, where did we come from? What were the first ones of our species? And this is, it appears to be a universal phenomenon to ask about origins. And we might ask, why? Why do we want to know? Why don't other creatures want to know? Well, I think there are a number of different explanations. One is our insatiable curiosity, including something like scientific curiosity. Uh, another is our uneasiness, perhaps, about ourselves and the course of our existence. Why do we, why is it so hard? Uh, why do we have to labor? Why do weeds grow? Why do women scream in pain when they give birth uh, to offspring, a totally natural event that is the part of the replication of the species? Why are men so miserable to women? Uh, and why do they put up with it? And uh, maybe above all, why do we die? So the story addresses in an incredibly powerful, though difficult way, uh, 
but in very, very tight compass. It addresses those questions and more uh, in a way that human beings appear to want and need as a way of understanding their fate. Humans have a need to tell stories in order to explain things to themselves that they don't, or to ourselves that we don't understand, right? But then the stories are made up by humans, and so they mislead us in, you know, the, 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 and I wonder whether you, I wonder whether, I guess what I would ask, and I don't know if this is going to be productive or not, but I guess what I would ask is whether, like, in your research, you've encountered ways that these stories kind of talk to each other to try to like fill in some of the holes or in a sense, you know, um, implicitly critique each other, you know, whether the ways the stories evolve is a kind of conversation between the stories about say zombies or werewolves or whatever. Well, I mean, one thing to think of is, is to view story as less an object that's handed down unchanged over time and think of it more like um like the roots of a tree you know that slowly over the centuries they grow they go deeper they change direction and so the stories that we hear you know growing up they're they're slightly different from the ones a generation or two before if you go back hundreds of years if we were to get in a time machine and, and go back to to germany in the 1500s we might hear stories that remind us of you know Little Red Riding Hood or Hansel and Gretel, but they'll they'll sound so incredibly different to us because of all the things that have changed. It's it's like a really long, enormous game of telephone, you know, where you pass the message on to your your neighbor, and then they 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 try their best with it. Um, story is fluid. Story is it has a way of kind of filling. You you know you ask like, do they do they have these gaps or do they fill in each other's spaces? And I think that story kind of does it on its own. You know when when you're in the middle of telling something, if you realize as you're telling it that, oh, that doesn't make sense. Well, I'm going to add a detail that helps it make sense. And now you've passed on a corrected version to somebody else. And when they tell somebody else that story that they just heard, it's going to have a different flavor to it, a different, whether it's one or two or a dozen details that have changed. Um, stories tend to fill themselves out over time. Yeah. So it's it's just, it's the that's the way the story works. It is, it's a lot more fluid um, and people tend to think of it as like, well, that's just the story, you know, but it, that's, that's not how it works. Story evolves. Mostly unconsciously, I guess, is what you're saying that basically people retell it and then like sort of add details without necessarily thinking that they are commenting on or fleshing out parts of earlier stories. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think that we, we like things to be neat and tidy and if a story is passed on to us that has some some holes in it, we either go looking for the answers to those holes or we just fill them in ourselves. You know, it's just kind of what we do. Um, and, and you know, in the end, it's just story anyway. We're just we're just tweaking some fiction. So it's, it's OK. And then five centuries later, we have this thing that's, you know, well, that's the story, you know, and, and let's not veer from that. And and that's how folklore works. And um, I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by what causes it to shift directions? You know, is there a wind blowing from in this century from this direction? And did, did a culture shift in another way over here? And yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, I mean, I wonder whether, I mean, there aren't too many stories left to it, like in terms of our relationship to the stories, right? So Greenblatt, he, you know, I, I full disclosure, I, I read the book that he's talking about here. So I haven't seen this clip, okay. but he was on, he was on my show. 
And he talks about how the story of Adam and Eve has a kind of evolution, right? So it's, you know, it's this very, very short story in the Bible. It's like a page and a half long. O over time, theologians wrestle with it. Augustine, in particular, really tries, you know, to elaborate the idea that, like, all of this is real. You know, people go back and forth. Like, is this real? Is this allegory? Is it metaphor? You know, Milton fleshes it out even more, really telling the details of the relationship between Adam and Eve in their marriage, you are sort of making them up, but, but making them very real, uh, as do a number of artists like Albrecht Durer and so on. And Greenblatt says that basically, ultimately, that kills the story. Like, that in the end, the kind of hyper-realism that, that is able to be achieved in the modern age with respect to, to the story starts making the flaws in the story like mm -hmm. more obvious, making it more, more prone to skeptics basically less plausible in a way, you know, the, the, as people try to make it more and more true. I, I would agree. It's very insightful. It's like story is, is like a crumpled balloon that we've been given by the people that came before us. And we want, we want it to be more than it is. And we fill it with air and we find out that it's got holes in it and it leaks and it's, you know, it doesn't feel right. Like that's, that's story. And you ask people to talk about Adam and Eve and they're going to tell you that, you know, Adam and Eve were in the garden and they grabbed this apple and they bit it and everything went to pot. And well, you know, the Bible doesn't mention an apple. There's no, there's no specific there's fruit no apple. name. Yeah. yeah like, but that's, but again, that's part of the, the, the culture's idea of what the story is versus what the story was. Um, and over time, the cultural interpretation tends to take over, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And like the snake, like, why is it a, you know, I, I reread the story recently. It's just a snake. It's not Satan. Like we would say it's Satan. Again, the cultural interpretation, you know, from from maybe the New Testament is that the snake is Satan. Right. Yeah. I mean, we we've we've filled in the blanks. We've we've it's kind of like watching the the new Hobbit trilogy. Right. Like this is this this was this was a small kids book that Peter Jackson took and turned into an epic three movie trilogy and invented relationships with characters that weren't in the book at all. And, and, but, but it's because we want, we want more to the story. You know, we want to have more going on. We want all these different details filled in. And, and so, well, folks, that's what you get. You know, you get Peter Jackson's Hobbit trilogy. <laughs> I'm sorry, but this is what you have to live with now. Well, I yeah. mean, the notion of fan fiction, I guess, is helpful here, right? I mean, it's, it's like fan fiction. Yeah. I mean, and, and so what, What's that delineator between something that actually edits the the Uber story, you know, the the meta myth, and and what just becomes somebody's commentary on it? And fan fiction doesn't take off usually because it's, you know, it has a low profile, it doesn't have a wide audience, and so most people don't catch on to it outside of you know a small community on Wattpad. And because of intellectual property issues, like Peter Jackson can afford to pay for the rights to the well, story, yeah. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, like we 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 have to fill in the the blanks for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Aaron Mankey, I've truly enjoyed this conversation, and um, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. And that wraps up another episode of Think Again. If you are listening regularly and you want to continue the conversation uh, in a more informal uh, way and you want to be part of it, come join us on Facebook. We have a private Facebook group on there. It's called Friends of Think Again. Just uh, search for us and request to join, and I'll let you in. And uh, 
there's lots of conversation going on on there about the ideas that are on the show, about books, about things that are on people's minds. Um, and I'd love to have you there if you're listening. We'll be back next week with another great conversation and hope to have you there. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 